Good evening. Goodbye Forever by Nat Chang Rinpoche. Chapter 11, Part 3. Herr Rubenbacher's opinion of me, having seen a photograph, was that I should be in prison, hanging chained to a wall. A year previously, I suppose, my father would have been of the same opinion, but times had changed. All was well, however, and Herr Rubenhacker knew nothing of my presence in Arten. Tante Richen and Uncle Arnold thought Horst Rubenhacker was insane, and so they kept stumm. They were monumentally kind and easy-going, and even though they were ever so slightly fearful, lest I was arrested for being long-haired, they made no mention of my shocking appearance. I was Renata's elder son, and as far as they were concerned, that made me a fine fellow. My mother evidently thought I was a fine fellow, in spite of my hair and outlandish clothing, so they accepted the package with apparent ease. There was magnificent sausage to eat and utterly wonderful coffee to drink. There was also Dagmar Strauss to visit. Dagmar was a girl a year older than me who was in some way connected to my aunt and uncle, but I never found out in what way. Nevertheless, I was introduced, and she turned out to be extremely pleasant and bright. She seemed fascinated by the fact that I was more or less famous. I was up there with her British rock music heroes, and, it shames me to admit this, I didn't try too hard to rid her of that impression. I told no lies, but somehow failed to undermine her imagination. That's not too arduous when your German is rudimentary. In our few days together, her mother had bounded up with a copy of Hertzu, a television guide magazine. There was a pop song competition and it was deemed appropriate that I should enter it. After all, I was some kind of pop star, so why not? And anyway, it would make a good translation exercise for her daughter. How could I say no? How could I explain that I hated pop music and that entering competitions was anathema to me? No, I couldn't do that. I had to agree and before much time had passed, I started really enjoying the process. I had to put my mind to reconstructing one of the songs I'd written, Dead Man's Hand but that proved less easy than I anticipated. Dachmar found the English utterly incomprehensible and I had to explain that it wasn't normal English. It was poetry 
And more than that, it was poetry with a black American slant. I had to go through a process that reminded me of explaining Bob Dylan to Annalee Mandelbaum. Just before Graham arrived, we'd got the thing in shape and sent it off to Hitsu. I look at the deal but can't understand. Dealers looking through me at the piano man. The clothes I'm wearing's all contraband. Seems like I'm looking at the dead man's hand. In the evenings, we watch the German television production of Der Abenteuerliche Simplicissimus, which I managed to follow, more or less, as the story made itself clear as it went along. Dachmar would interpret the complicated parts and kept me abreast with what was unfolding. Der Abenteuerliche Simplicissimus follows the ups and downs of a boy, Simplicissimus, Simplicissimus, the son of a peasant family from Spessart. He is separated from his home by foraging dragoons, escapes from them and is adopted by a forest hermit. Set to live the life of a hermit, he is conscripted again into military service. Having reached maturity in a depraved environment, he adventitiously joins the armies of both warring sides, switching allegiances purely on chance circumstances. His story is one of continual alternation, wealth and poverty, triumph and defeat, romance and depravity. Sick at heart with the ways of the world, he returns to the forest hermit who has since died. He takes over the hermitage and lives the rest of his life in tranquillity. As I watched Der Abenteuerisch Simplicissimus, it occurred to me that my life was not so entirely dissimilar to his. Except that my life was one of emotional rags to emotional riches. Would I end up as a hermit? I was a Buddhist after all, and there were Buddhist hermits in Tibet. It might make sense at some point, but I was far from sick of the world, even though it had its lows as well as its highs. I was currently riding pretty high, and although I was aware that I needed to find the one taste of pleasure and pain, I had no objection at all to pleasure. Maybe I'd just have to accept that you had to choose both from the menu at restaurant reality. Would I ever be able to do that? I both wanted it and feared it. Still, I had a lifetime to reach the point where I'd meet hope and fear and treat the two imposters just the same. Some fragment of Rudyard Kipling's poetry came to mind. They were from a piece called If. If you can dream, 
and not make dreams your master. If you can think and not make thoughts your aim. If you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same. Profound words and yes, that's what I wanted. Or at least that was the state to which I aspired. Rudyard Kipling's Two Imposters brought to mind the eight imposters designated by Buddhism. One had to find their sameness of flavour. Triumph and disaster had to be experienced, along with praise and blame as having the same taste. The idea that they were imposters was interesting. They were merely public opinion posing as reality. Wearing a certain item of clothing could be cause for applause or ridicule, but neither response was real. The world was thick with meaningless opinions and one could either be a slave to those opinions or not. If you can make one heap of all your winnings and risk it on one turn of pitch and toss and lose and start again at your beginnings and never breathe a word about your loss. Well, I never breathed a word about the loss of Alice or the loss of Mr. Love or Annalie. Steve had pried a few words out of me, but I'd been fairly scant in what I'd said. I was used to losing it all and starting again. That was the shape of it in terms of life, as far as I could see. Maybe I could make a partially decent sort of Buddhist out of myself. I was sad to bid farewell to Dachmar because, well, I think we'd both been getting interested in each other. I'd learnt my lesson with Annalie, however, and wasn't up for another relationship with a lady from another country. I was married to the Savage Cabbage Blues Band in any case and couldn't go forming liaisons that would take me away. Graham was obviously overjoyed to see me and we talked away half the night. Graham was downing English by the pint as if he'd been dying of thirst. We had hilarious discussions in which he described Horst Rubenhacher as a cross between Hermann Munster and Lamburger Gessler. We spent some splendid days with our Tante Rickchen and Uncle Arnold, eating excellent Metwurst, Jagdwurst, Bratwurst and Bockwurst. We drank the most wonderful coffee and ate bread rolls with the most excruciatingly exquisite cherry jam. We spent an afternoon helping Tante Rickchen pick those sour cherries in her allotment an allotment that would have made Chekhov envious. 
so eating the jam made from last year's cherries was made all the more delicious. We checked out the Schutzenfest, at which I won several hundred screwdrivers by shooting sections of chalk on wires. Every five sections of chalk I shattered won me a screwdriver. They asked me if I didn't want to shoot at the target to win better prizes, because I was evidently some kind of sharp shooter. But I said I was happy to shoot chalk and win screwdrivers. In the end, I cleared them out of screwdrivers and they offered to trade them back for a radio. I accepted the radio gladly and gave it to Tante Rickchen and Uncle Arnold as a present. They were delighted with it and told me they were proud of me, despite my hair. Word had already got back to them about the English hippie who was resident in their home. Er sieht fürchterlich aus, aber er ist höflich und er kann gut scheißen. In spite of being a Struvelpeter, who could shoot like whomever the German version of Annie Oakley might be. I owed whatever prowess I had to my mother. She was an excellent shot. She had a fine row of rifle shooting medals she'd won as a teenager. We had a couple of .177 air rifles at home, purchased by my father to encourage manliness. To his delight, I took to the art and seemed to excel, with a little help from my mother. She could swing one of those things up to her shoulder with one hand and hit the bullseye dead centre after not more than a split second's aim. She'd done that once when my father had claimed the sights were out. She'd asked to give it a try and shot through the dining room window, rifle in one hand and tea cloth in the other. These sights are correct, she commented, handed the gun back to my father and returned to cooking Sunday lunch. My father was good enough to say that he'd better work on his marksmanship. He was never vain, self-enamoured, pompous, petulant or unjust, even though he could be exceedingly overbearing. The last two days we spent with Aunt Ruth and her daughters. What nice young ladies they were! They both spoke remarkably good English and played musical instruments, flute and piano. They were amazed by the devil and amazed to hear blues. I played a fair few numbers for them and wrote down the words so that they could sing with me. They loved to sing and found it great fun, trying to pronounce English with a Delta accent, or my version of it at least. The Kugelheide family were charming, gracious, generous and monumentally hospitable. They made a punch one evening with pink champagne and more strawberries than the mind can comfortably conceive. The champagne was diluted with sparkling water in deference to the ages of their daughters and of Graham, 
but that didn't detract in any way from the sumptuousness of it. And then it was all in the past. The long ride home and giving our parents an account that evidently pleased them. Then, a week later, a tie arrived. It was from Hutsu magazine. It was a runner-up prize. It was deep sky blue with deep rose clouds and was emblazoned with the glorious words, Ich bin ein Dichter. I am a poet. Well, I knew that. My mother was mightily proud of my achievement and so, strangely, was my father. I was ever so slightly disappointed at not having won the first prize. I caught myself feeling disappointed and felt like an utter dolt. Did I actually want to win a pop song competition? No. What did it signify? Nothing. What did a Vajrayana Buddhist care about winning or losing competitions? I didn't have to reject the Ich bin ein Dichter Thai because it was an illusion. That would just be another illusion. I didn't have to run in illusory circles trying to escape the illusion of the popular media. I creased up laughing. What's so funny, Vic? asked Graham. In answer, I held up the tie and announced with mock hauteur, Ich bin ein Berliner. Nein, Graham laughed. Du bist ein Hamburger. <laughs>